Bible study. We're in 2 Kings. If you're watching from uh, the live stream, we welcome you. Thank you for being part. We've still got people here uh, eating, getting food. Uh, sorry, we, you can't join us in that, uh, but uh, they'll be coming over and having a seat shortly. But we're going to go ahead and get started because it's the bottom of the hour, and uh, we actually have some folks here tonight who it's important that they get out of here before it gets dark and get home. Uh, so they don't drive after dark, so we want to be, be mindful and sensitive to that. So let's go ahead and begin, if we can, with prayer and ask the Lord to just bless our Bible study tonight. Hopefully you came ready to, uh, to learn and grow in God. Father, we do thank you that every time we gather, your spirit is here, your presence is here, and the reality is you came with us because you live in us. And so our, my spirit bears witness with these in the room that we are not only children of God, but we are of the same mind. We desire to grow in the Word of God tonight. That's why we're here. So bless this time, Lord. May your spirit just move strongly in the midst of each person. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we turn to, to uh, 2 Kings chapter 18. We are continuing to move through uh, 1 and 2 Kings. The, the, it's the book of Kings. Uh, remember, we, I shared that in the very beginning in the introduction that it was not first and second kings, it was the book of kings, and then someone divided it out, you know, and put chapter and verse to it. So uh, what, we've, what we're coming to tonight is we're going to talk about the reign of Hezekiah. That's a name that all of us, I'm sure, are familiar with from Scripture. We're also going to talk about the Assyrian threat to Jerusalem. And uh, so let's pick it up if we can. Uh, Know this, that Hezekiah, for the most part, was a righteous king. And with the fall of Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and that we talked about that a week ago, that came to an end. So now this is the final section of 2 Kings. The focus turns to the surviving southern kingdom of Judah, and they were around after the fall of the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel, the southern kingdom was around another 136 years. They were able to make it from 722 B.C. down to 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., they were hauled away in captivity by the Babylonians. So these final chapters, what I'm trying to say here, the final chapters that we're going to be studying are covering a span of 136 years. And they're dominated by the account of two very good kings. One that we're going to study tonight, King Hezekiah. The second is Josiah. We'll pick him up at chapter 22 in a couple weeks, okay? So these are two great kings that are around towards the end, right before God hauls uh, Judah off into captivity. Now, the reforms of these two godly kings did not reverse the effect that God set in place because of the apostasy in Israel and the apostasy in Judah, the falling away. In Judah, it wasn't as much apostasy as it was just taking on other idols, where in the north, they actually walked away from God. Uh, in the south, they would use uh, the high places, uh, but they would use them for the worship of God, even though they were supposed to go to uh, Jerusalem for everything. And, and, and so, so you have... The result of this is because of Ahaz, who was the father of uh, 
the father of uh, Hezekiah, and then his son, Manasseh. So you've got Hezekiah, who's one of the great kings in the Old Testament. But his father, Ahaz, and his son, Manasseh, are two of the absolute worst kings. So put that together. How a father, a father who's wicked raises up a son who is righteous, and that father raises up his son, and he's wicked. So you, you know, the reality is you don't know. You can raise your children up in the Lord, and there is no guarantee. Likewise, you cannot raise your child in the Lord, and you can live uh, a life of corruption and evil, and yet have a child who loves God deeply and is righteous in their, in their life. Isn't that cool? God can pick and use whoever He chooses, and God will work with anybody in any circumstance. And there's no such thing as an environment that you grow up in that you can't possibly recover from. God can recover anybody from anything. Amen? So that, that's one of the things that just irritates me to no end in our society today, this idea we've given people this green light to say, well, you don't know how I was raised. You don't know how rough it was, how tough it was on me. Blah, blah, blah. As an excuse for them not trying. As an excuse for them not going and pushing as hard as they can to get ahead. Uh, if I remember correctly, the stories of my grandparents and other older adults that I've loved down through the years, they lived hard lives when they were little, but they turned out pretty well. It has nothing to do with your environment. It has to do with your, your ability to know God, to focus on God. And then there's other people who don't know God, but they just have such a strong will. I'm not going to give in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make something of my life. And you can do it. Uh, one of the areas that I think this is the saddest in our nation is suffering so much today for the sins of 60 years ago when the welfare system was placed in our government. Prior to welfare in the 1960s, the children in Harlem, New York, which were predominantly black, scored just as high on the standard test as every other student in Manhattan. There was no difference. You don't believe it? I'll tell you one of the guys who lived there and who experienced it and studied it. He has his PhD in economics. His name is Thomas Sowell. And so this idea that somehow certain kids can't because of their upbringing, they can't because of their environment, that is, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And it sets children on the wrong course. Well, guess what? You've got a father here who was wicked, but his son hung out with Isaiah. By the way, that's, let me share, share that with you. The contemporaries in this day that Hezekiah was king, Micah and Isaiah were the prophets. So he evidently had enough of a relationship there was an influence that these prophets had on this young boy growing up under a wicked father. It was probably the number of times that the prophets came and spoke to his dad about wickedness and turning to God, and that if they would return to God, God would save them. And this boy picked up on that, and there was something in his heart because God was calling him 
and he was able to do some wonderful things. So let's go ahead if we can. Uh, if we go back to the very beginning of 1 Kings, by chapter 5, the temple is being built by Solomon. Remember that? It starts out with David, and God says, you're not building anything. So David goes into fundraising mode and raises the money to build the temple. And I don't know why churches struggle with fundraising. Now look, I, I, I guess I do know why, because it's, in some churches it never ends. You're always raising money for something, you know? And that would wear me out too. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful to say that in the five years, four and a half years of Vero Bible Fellowship, we've never had a fundraiser where we're trying to, uh, you know, get people to pledge money to something. We will have to do that, though, when we get a building, I can promise you. Because no matter what we get with the money that we've saved, and thank God we have saved, uh, it's still not going to be enough to do everything. So that will happen, and we shouldn't complain about it. Uh, that's how they had to build the temple. The people had to give. And so that's what happened back in the beginning. And now we've come all the way from the beginning of, of the first book of Kings, where they were building the temple for God and the glory of God and to worship God. And now we're coming into a time where uh, Assyria has just hauled all of the northern kingdom, the important people, uh, all the civic government leaders and everybody else, hauled them off in captivity with hooks in their chest. So you talk about a... By the way, uh, the British Museum has an exhibit of Sennacherib or Sennacherib, I can't say his name. Man, I'll just say it this way, Sennacherib, okay? It's probably pronounced wrongly, but that's okay. So they have, from his dwelling in Nineveh, they've got a, a rendering of a wall rendering that shows him at his temporary housing just south of Jerusalem when these events that we're going to study tonight take place. And on the wall rendering, it actually, it's, a, it's just beautiful. It shows him there on a temporary or a mobile throne. It shows the captives of the, of the, north, of the southern kingdom, and they're being hauled off. It shows large oxen carts hauling away all, this, all the loot. They have completely looted Jerusalem. They, they have that exhibit at the British Museum. I think that's pretty, pretty fascinating. They have other things there, too, that are, that are interesting about this, this particular time period, but I don't want to go into it. It was a, pretty, it was a fun study looking at that. Anyway, um, so let's begin at verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, there seems to be some dispute over the dates of the reigning kings here. Hezekiah, you need to understand, was a co-regent with his father Ahaz until 715 B.C. So when that is in 715 B.C., that's when he became the sole king of Judah. So they had this whole thing called double dating where a father would bring his son up to the throne as a co-regent of the people until the father died. And really it's a pretty good secession plan because now the boy is going to learn under the tutelage of his dad from up close and personal. He's literally already reigning, but he doesn't have full power yet. 
he has to share that power with his dad who is helping him. So that's, that's the story with Hezekiah and his father Ahaz, okay? Uh, and so now to put this on a timeline, if I can for you, when Hezekiah became king of Judah, it was Hosea who reigned in the northern kingdom. He was the last king in Israel, in the northern kingdom. Israel would fall to the Assyrians under his leadership. And the point is simply this, that Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah at the very end of the kingdom of Israel. This is another possible, possible reason why we see a wicked father in Ahaz raise up a son, and the son is righteous in the eyes of God. Because this boy grew up in the period of time when Israel was at its worst. It had fallen into all kinds of apostasy, denying God, and he's seeing it, and he's hearing the prophets calling them out for it. And he's been told, even from you know, 100 years earlier, how the prophets warned, if you don't return to the commandments of God, if you don't honor the precepts of God, you will suffer a captivity. You will be hauled off. They, they knew this 100 years before it happened. And, and these stories had an impact on this boy. And these, these prophets had an impact on this boy. But, but the northern kingdom, watching, having a, an object lesson in front of you, watching the northern kingdom of Israel literally be hauled off by the Assyrians, that had to make things pretty up close and personal, don't you think? And so when he comes into power, he is a different leader than his dad. Look at the second part of verse 2. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. So Hezekiah was one of the better kings of Judah. And so God prospered him with a longer reign. And that would happen many times. The longer reigns were because the, the kings were listening to God. And so God sustained them and he honored that. Okay? By the way, uh, Hezekiah reigned by himself for 20 years after his father died. And with his son, Manasseh, he brought Manasseh in and reigned with Manasseh for nine years. Okay? So the 29 years given here indicates only those years after the co-regency with his father, Ahaz. Okay? So that's when he actually became the sovereign by himself. Now... It also needs to be noted that Hezekiah's reign was a reign where he was helping a nation recover from uh, denouncing and even disobeying God. So you can imagine how much of a transformation the nation of Israel is going to have to go through under him or the nation of Judah. Okay, this is huge. Verse 3, and so here's how he responds to, to the situation. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He's going up against, it would be like going up against the, the, the pagan, uh, base-minded national leaders and state leaders and local leaders that we have today. And you go up against that. And it says, how do you do it? Right here. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? It means he only received from Scripture what he would do. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He listened to the prophets. 
He read the passages that he had of the stories from back in the beginning. And he was able to, to act upon these things. According to all that David, his father, had done. Those stories of David and David's conquest were passed down to him. No question about it. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Before you think Moses is worshiping a bronze serpent, we'll remember, we'll cover that story in, in uh, Numbers 21, I think it is. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to the bronze serpent. And it was called Nehushtan. Nehushtan. Hezekiah Church was a reformer. Okay? He was calling the people back to God by prohibiting. See, the other guys, all the other good kings of Judah, they would say, don't worship those things. Worship God. Let's, let's rebuild the walls. Let's do this. Let's all these good things. You can worship God at the high places, but worship the one true God. But they never prohibited. They never came out with a national decree. You will not worship false gods in these places any longer. He's the first one. And he's here towards the end. He would not allow them to do that. Now, Hezekiah is actually doing something about the problem when all the other good kings of Judah never came out and did it. Verse 4, And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. No, turn in your Bible if you want, but I'm not going to really read the passage. I'm just going to share with you. But if you want to mark it or at least cross-reference cross it there in your column, Numbers 21, 1 through 9. It describes how the Israelites became impatient and spoke against God and Moses when they were wandering in the wilderness. And, and so what did God do when he heard the people complaining? Oh, you brought us out here to kill us. We'd be better off back in Egypt and blah, blah, blah. There's not enough food. There's not water. All this. God, he, he sent them what, what the Scripture calls fiery serpents. That doesn't mean literal fire coming out of their mouths. It means these are poisonous snakes among the Israelites. And many of them were bitten. And many of the bitten died. And others who were bitten were going to die. And finally, because God brought that judgment against them, they wised up and they came to Moses and said, we're so sorry for what we said. Who, what were we thinking? And, and please go back to God, intercede in our behalf and tell God that we'll, we'll obey. And so Moses intercedes in behalf of the people, and God tells Moses, I want you to build a bronze serpent, and I want you to stick it on the end of a pole. And those who've been bitten by these fiery serpents, if they will look up to the bronze serpent, then they will live. They won't die. Okay? And of course... What that represents, it's a type or a picture of Jesus Christ, who Jesus quoted in John uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen what Jesus said. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The bronze serpent restored their life Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, 
He's going to restore eternal life to people. Before the fall, Adam and Eve would live eternally. And then after the fall, now it's temporary. And we live in a temporary body, right? But we're going to get a new body, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. Eternal in the heavens. So this is good stuff, man. Jesus is saying that that bronze serpent in the Old Testament was a picture of me. And if today in my day, Jesus is saying to the people listening, if you'll look to me, if you'll lift me up, then you'll have eternal life. Isn't that cool? But that's not how, that's not how the people in the days of Judah were treating that bronze serpent. They were worshiping it. They had made the serpent itself a god, little g. And this is why Hezekiah went and busted it up, completely tore it apart because of how people were worshiping an idol. One last thing that I want to say to you about this. It's interesting that the word Nehushtan, guess what it means? It just means a piece of bronze. It's just a piece of bronze. That's all it is. And, and many of the scholars that I've read about and have studied this passage believe that it was actually Hezekiah who named it, not the people. And it doesn't say, it doesn't say that they named it Nehushtan. He did. Why? Another way of saying to them, you're worshiping a chunk of bronze. That's all it is. And I'm going to bust it up. I'm going to show you it has no power. It's never healed anybody. It can't save anyone. And so that's what he does. Uh, man has a natural inclination to worship anything other than the one true God. <laughs> and you know why? Because we're like our daddy Abraham, or I'm Abraham, Adam, Eve. They had everything in the garden. It was perfect. They were perfect. And they chose something lesser. When God specifically told them, don't eat that, that's like saying to a little kid in the kitchen, honey, little Johnny, while mommy's in the other room, whatever you do, don't touch the cookie jar. Where does little Johnny go when mom leaves the room? You know where he goes. Adam and Eve made a beeline. There's an inclination in us. And after the fall, we inherited that same inclination for sin. And to put something other than God over us. I'm going to adore something other than God in my life. And that's what we see happening here. The people had worshipped something created to point to Jesus. This was something that God used. God fashioned it. And yet they're using it for other purposes, for wrong purposes. Uh, I wonder what would happen. What would happen if in this world they discovered the cross that Jesus died on? Well, you know what would happen. The highest bidder would get it, 
and people would flock to Rome, to the Vatican, so they could be close to the cross of Jesus. And you would hear all these healings, all these things happening around the cross. And I'll tell you what they would be. Demonic. Demonic. Satan has power to do signs and wonders. Revelation says in the very end, he will do that. And there are people who place their trust in God through signs and wonders. They will be easily deceived by Satan in the end. I'm glad they've not found the Ark of the Covenant. I'm glad they haven't found the, the, the vessel, the, the cup, that Jesus served the new covenant in his blood, wine, at the, at the first communion in the upper room. Because guaranteed, whatever that artifact is, man would worship it instead of the one true God. It's so sad. So we should always be on guard against idolatry, even in our day. Okay? Uh, it lurks around every corner. And by the way, it seeps into the church. Isn't it interesting what water can do on a roof? Just one little tiny pinhole, one little crack in a roof, and water will seep in. It'll find its way in. And that's what these forms of idol worship do. We, we have to guard against making our Christian leaders idols. I was deeply saddened to hear of the passing of Charles Stanley. But I don't worship Charles Stanley. I mean, it never came across my mind that, oh, well, forget it now. We'll never be able to make it. He's taken out all these great leaders over the last 25 years. Oh, we're, we're done. I don't worship men, even godly men. Don't worship them. Don't make education an idol. Don't make science an idol in the church, where we would rather listen to what they call science when it's not even real science and place that ahead of God and our faith in God. Don't make human personalities, charismatic leaders, don't make them your God. There are some churches that literally live because of the personality of that pastor. And when he either passes on or he leaves the church for whatever reason, the church crumbles because the church was built on the man and his abilities, his woo whatever that is. Don't build on making human traditions your idol. Certain types of ministry that you've done for a long, long period of time, you know it can become an idol? How many of you grew up or at least were part of a church somewhere where they had a nativity scene, a live nativity every Christmas? We did it. My dad did it. He was the youth pastor. Mom and dad were the youth pastors in Daytona. So I would be out there as a shepherd boy or whatever, and we had angels above, and we'd make a big thing. And, man, the nativity, we'd do that every year. Man, had real animals out there. One year, what animal gave birth to another animal? I mean, it was, uh, oh, that was in Palm Beach Gardens, I think. It was a goat that gave, had, had a kid uh, right there at the, 
nativity that night. It was the coolest thing, you know. Um, <laughs> no, it was in the manger when it happened. Oh, you mean in the... That's funny. Uh, so, but, but you know, just because that was something that gave the community a picture of what Christmas is about, that doesn't mean you, you have to do it every year and that it always has to be there. You can worship that kind of an event. And you know, here's how you know who worships, who's made an idol. Because when you don't do it one year, woo, they get sideways quick. Who do you think you are? We've done that for 35 years here. Well, how did they make it before 35 years ago? And I'm not saying that we should just get rid of things for the sake of getting rid. I, I just think that things can have a season. Our, commun our communion is not with a nativity. Our communion is with God. And the Spirit is constantly moving. And He blows a fresh wind and he sings a new song, David said. And we need to be singing new songs. Amen? Hey, if I'm stepping on your toes, move your feet. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Postures of worship where we look down upon people who don't worship the way we do. They don't come to church prepared to worship like we have, like we come. They don't dress nicely enough for us. They don't lift up a holy hand or hands. And we measure all these things. You, you have created your posture of worship to be an idol. Because the reality is it doesn't really matter. The posture can change. You're not worshiping the posture. You worship the one who, who compels you for some to do this, others to do this, others to do this. Somebody's wrong? I don't think so. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord. We're never going to get through all this. And I knew it. I didn't even prepare all of it. So just that ought to encourage some of you because you're wondering what in the heck is going on tonight. Let me take a little swig here. Get a little gas going here. So he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. See, they had, they had the Pentateuch. They had the laws of God. And he was holding on to God fastly. Hezekiah was unique in his passion, unique in his personal trust in God, and in promoting the true worship of God among the people. That was unique because no other king had pushed as far and, and, and called the people out as much as Hezekiah. Now, verse 7, And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Because of Hezekiah's faithful trust in the Lord, God blessed him thoroughly. It fulfilled a long-standing promise that David had received from God about his descendants. 
that if they obeyed God, their reign would always be secure. God was honoring that, that promise to David. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. It was Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, who had taken a different path from Sennacherib's father. When his father was reigning solely, uh, Sennacherib's dad was reigning and, and came in on Judah, and Ahaz, the king of Judah, just basically surrendered whatever he wanted and said, well, you know, just let us remain. Let us live. Let me remain king. We'll pay you whatever. And so he put this big payment, this tribute, on Judah. Well, when, when Hezekiah came up, wanting to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, one of the first things he stopped doing was paying off, uh, paying the tribute to the Assyrians. And he wasn't dealing with the boy's father. Now he's dealing with the son, who is Sennacherib. And he just isn't going to pay. We're not going to do that. We're only going to pay tribute to one God, the one true and living God, not to you. And then he, it says in verse 8, he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza or Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Who does that sound like? Who else did that? Wasn't it David himself who brought the Philistines under control? So Hezekiah found success in crushing Judah's aggressive neighbors. Philistines were a very aggressive neighbor, always a bother, a nuisance. They were like flies in your nose. His work was to rebuild a strong, free, and independent Judah. And boy, did he do it. Verse 9, In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And, one of the, and at the end of three years, he took it. And in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. So while he's the king, he's seeing the northern kingdom crumble under the Assyrians. He watched the, the great capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria, fall. The king of Assyria, the Israelites, away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor and the river Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. They would take you and they would, they would carry you off to another country that they had dominated and controlled so that you were no longer, there was no Israel. You would forget Israel. You would be in a different culture. And other Israelites like you were in different places with different cultures and different languages. It was to completely remove any remembrance of being a Jew. That's what they did. And because they did not obey the voice of, of the Lord, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord of their God, but transgressed His covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. Now, it needs to be said that once the northern kingdom of Israel was obliterated by the Assyrians, from, the, from that time forward, the southern kingdom would be known not only by the name Judah, but it also would be referred to as Israel, because there's no more Israel up north. Now, you say, where'd that come from? From way back when Moses had the children of Israel, the Israelites in the wilderness. They were all called Israelites 
And so that was a name that they re went back to. That it was Israel. It wasn't just Judah. It's Israel now. And you'll see that as we go forward to the end of this, uh, this book. Verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. This is 14 years later now. Something has happened. Something's changing. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, uh, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So Sennacherib has captured all the fortified cities surrounding Jerusalem. Judah is in serious trouble now. They only need to take Jerusalem to have it all. And Hezekiah knee-jerks. Have you ever knee-jerked? When all of a sudden, bad news comes your way, and you're thinking, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to make it? Oh, my goodness. And you're throwing your arm. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my goodness. That's what he did. He knee-jerked. And he sought to rectify the situation with Sennacherib by admitting that he had made a mistake by not paying the tribute that the Assyrian king, had, that his father had placed on Judah. Since when is a... Listen, he said, I, I, I acted wrongly. I want to make it right. What do I, what do I owe you? Here's my question. Since when does God make mistakes? You were, you were following God. You only did what the Lord wanted, and you stopped payment to a foreign king. And now, all of a sudden, it's a mistake? What's, where's that coming from? I'll tell you. Fear. It's driven by fear. All the cities, the fortified cities are gone. All that's left is Jerusalem. Fear drove that. Remember now, when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, one of the first things they did was go up against Jericho, a walled, fortified city. Walls were very high. They could not get over them. The Israelites were an agrarian people more than anything. They were not soldiers. They were not an army. They didn't have weapons. And what did God do? March around and on the seventh time blow the trumpets and then step back really fast. God took down Jericho. God took care of it. At that time, Israel had their eyes on God. This time, their eyes are on the king of Assyria. Their eyes are on the problems outside the walls of their city. And this is very interesting. It says, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Lachish, again, is very close to Jerusalem. 
32 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So the king is literally sitting outside of Jerusalem waiting to take it. Okay? Uh, and that's where that British Museum, that's the piece. That's what he's referring to. It's right here in the text, which is pretty cool, really. Uh, I guess it's plausible to think that Hezekiah thought that since the northern kingdom had been recently conquered and that all the fortified cities of Judah have now been captured, that God must be saying, I'm not going to save the city. He does remember the prophets who said that God will take out the southern kingdom for the sins that have been committed. But that doesn't mean it's yet. And so, verse 17 Hezekiah takes matters in his own hands. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So the king of Assyria sends his people up, a delegation, and, and Hezekiah sends out his delegation. Uh, by the way, Rabshakeh is a reference. It's not a name. It's a title. It's a commander. He is probably the field commander for this mighty army that's standing outside the city walls. Okay? And he walks right into the city of Jerusalem, and he stands by this aqueduct, this water supply system that Jerusalem needs, that if they were under siege, this is one of the things that they would rely upon, the water flow coming in. And he stands there, and he... All he does, his whole intention, is to bring great fear and trepidation upon Jerusalem, upon Hezekiah. Verse 19, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Who are you trusting in that you've rebelled against me? Well, he knew that Hezekiah had reached out to the Egyptians to have an alliance for help. That's what he's referring to here. It needs to be noted, write this in your, in your notes, that the prophet Isaiah did everything he possibly could to discourage the kings of Judah from having a relationship or an alliance with Egypt. Isaiah 19, 11 through 15, write it down. Isaiah 19, 11 through 15, let me read it for you. The prince of, this is really, this is, I, this is Isaiah just going off on the Egyptians. He is calling a spade a spade. And look what he says. The princes of Zone are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. It's right there. I'm not making that up. 
How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Now, listen now. This is the same Isaiah who's living in the day of Hezekiah. So he's telling him, what are you doing? He's telling his father, Ahaz, what are you doing? Reaching out to the Egyptians. But now let me ask you a question. You've got Sennacherib, the representative, or the king, and his representative who is trying to demoralize Judah into submission. You say, why? they had this great army outside the walls. Why not just go ahead and do battle and take it? Because if you can spare the city, that's a better way to go. So use fear to try and take over. That's what they're doing. Now, let me ask you a question. The, the questions that he was asking uh, uh, the king Hezekiah, the questions he was asking him were questions like, so who do you serve now? Who are you going to put your trust in now? Basically, the northern kingdom's been taken care of. All the cities outside your city are gone, and I've got a great army sitting out here waiting to take your city. So who are you going to trust in now? Who does that sound like when you're under great pressure and trial and you don't know where to turn in this world? Isn't that Satan who plants these seeds of doubt and fear and trepidation in your heart so that you don't know what to do? He's trying to... Look, Satan can't take out God. And, and really, he doesn't want to attack you because if he attacks you, uh, you're going to turn to God, and God's going to bring you through it, and God's going to get the glory, and people are going to see it. That doesn't work for Satan either. So what does he do? He just whispers in your ear. He doesn't want to attack you. He just wants to plant the seeds of doubt and fear so that now you are, you're anesthetized. You can't do anything. Hey, we don't have to go back very far. 2020, come to mind anybody with COVID? And what's Satan doing? Through the media, through the medical industry, through science? Fear. The political system, the news agents, fear. And it crippled churches. It crippled Christians. I'm not saying that there wasn't a season at the very beginning where we need to try to figure out what's going on. And so we need to stay home. We even closed the doors in that initial time. But then we realized these people really don't have a clue what they're talking about. And we're going to trust God. We're going to start meeting again. We were meeting back again by the summer. And so that's, that's what we're talking about here. Not letting Satan dictate our lives. Not letting him put you in such fear. You can't live your life for God. He'd love to do that to us. He's doing it to, to Judah. 
Now, it's likely that God is using Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to ask these questions. God's behind it. By the way, God was the one who brought the Assyrians against the northern kingdom, and He's the one that brought the Assyrians against Judah to scare them. God's behind it. Why? Because God's always looking for ways to test you. I read something today that somebody sent me. Let me see if I can bring it up. Read this for you. This is from this is from Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher. Gold is put into the furnace because it's gold. It is useless to try to refine rubbish there. A first-rate diamond will undergo more cutting than an inferior one. The great owner of heaven's jewels uses a sharper cutting machine on the most uh, valuable stones. Our king desires that we have many facets to reflect the glory of his name. You often think that Jesus does not care because he has not interposed he has not interposed with a great miracle. Gradually, you are getting poorer and becoming or becoming more afflicted in body. You had hoped for a miracle. My dear friend, sometimes God works a greater wonder when He sustains people's troubles, a trouble than by the delivering them. To let the brush burn with fire and not be consumed is a greater thing than quenching the flame and saving the bush. Possibly the hard suspicion that Jesus does not care takes another form. I do not ask the Lord to work a miracle, but I do ask Him to cheer my heart and apply the promises to my soul. I want His Spirit to visit me so that my pain may be forgotten in the delight of His presence I want to feel the full assurance of the Savior's presence that this present trial will be swallowed up in a far greater weighty weight of joy. Yet to my regard, the Lord hides His face, and this makes my trial all the heavies. I'm sorry, makes this trial all the heavies. What a mercy, what a mercy that you can never sink lower than grace when you come to your lowest point, God inter interposes. The tide turns when you reach the full ebb. The darkest part of the night is farthest from the rising sun. Believer, be of good courage. When things get tougher, put your trust in, in God even greater. Amen? God will bring you through. Hezekiah knee-jerked, and oftentimes we do too, and that's the trouble that we find ourselves in. It happens to us. We're closing it down. Good. Verse 22, but if you say to me, this is Sennacherib, the, the, the representative saying, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Oh, interesting. So he has studied up on Hezekiah. And, and he's found that Hezekiah removed all those high places, the places where the people had worshipped their gods. So he's thinking that that was a real bad mistake by Hezekiah because the people are upset with him. He's not aware. See, he's a polytheistic believer, okay? They had many gods. You took away all the many gods of the people. You must be in trouble with your people. Oh, no. He simply brought the people back to the one true and living God. And this guy and Sennacherib didn't understand that, okay? 
saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? They can only worship in one place? What kind of a silly rule is that? Uh, God ordered it. Rest with that. Amen? So the Rabshakeh knew that King Hezekiah had implanted these, these broad reforms all over Judah to bring them back to God. And he's trying to use that against them. Again, that's another tactic of the enemy. You know, hey, have you not noticed? You've been faithful to God lately. You've been giving money. You, 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 you went and helped at that Saturday work day. You've done so much for God. What has God done for you lately? Kind of like in the garden. The reason God told you not to eat of the fruit is because if you ate of it, you would become like Him. And that's what we see here. So verse 23, now he comes out with, I mean, this guy, the, the, his words are, are from Satan. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, we don't know that God actually said that to him. He probably has picked up that they were going to be taken through the prophets and other people that, that had been foretold. He's using it. He's just doing anything he can to try to shake the confidence, the God confidence of a king. Okay? So Satan is the enemy of our souls, folks. He uses the same approach. And I think we need to understand sometimes it's not that he's looking to pick a fight. He just wants to neutralize you so you can't do anything for God. I don't care what the economy becomes. Listen, let's say the economy gets better and your, your IRA account goes up. Woo! You got more money for a few more years until the next fall. Let's say that the economy crashes and you lose a lot. You'll turn to God. God will come through for you. He will love you. He will help you. I'm not saying he's going to recover everything you've lost. And I'm not saying that he's going to somehow uh, take you out of, out of the trial. I'm saying you won't be alone in the trial. He's the fourth up with the three in the fiery furnace. Amen? He'll be with us. We can't lose with God. So don't let exterior circumstances drive your life. Lean into God. It says of Hezekiah that he went hard after God. He leaned in. He was fast for the Lord. That's the way we ought to be living right now. Amen? And always living, not just now, always. So we're going to stop right there at verse 25. We'll pick it up, verse 26 next week, okay? Let's, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much for your love and thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would strengthen each of us tonight 
for the time that we have remaining to fellowship and give us a, a love for you like never before as we learn from these teachings tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Find some food and enjoy some fellowship. God bless those of you listening from home.